Yeah, thank you, sir. Uh, Luke 2, 8 through 14. There were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on, on earth, peace to those who, on whom his favor rests. And then uh, Luke 24 36 through 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, and he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh or bones, as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? He gave them a piece of broiled fish, he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I have told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So uh, this is the third in our series of Advent sermons. And I I mean, you know, if you've been paying good, close attention, which I know you have, the themes that we've been talking about, uh, faith, amazement, wonderment, uh, being terrified, thinking some, something's a go. All those different things we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks are present in, uh, not only implied in, that first uh, section from chapter 2 that we looked at at Luke, but then the second piece we read from Luke is Jesus' appearance on the shore to all the disciples immediately before his ascension and sending them to Jerusalem. And I don't know, it seemed like the right thing to do for this uh, kind of series we've been thinking about. Normally we talk about this as, I don't know, preparing your heart for Christmas and Advent. And this year I've tried to take a little bit closer look at, I don't know, like the basic narrative that the scripture gives us about how we encounter and respond to Jesus coming into the world. I mean, that's it. And at first we, I don't know, like the, the reason why the uh, elements in the Advent cycle are set up like they are, I've been trying to make the point that you know, the, the faith is not really, especially as presented in the gospel, about trying to get you to uh, believe that it is more likely than not that Jesus was real. It takes as a for granted thing that Jesus has come into the world in flesh. And the real question the gospel asks is, how do you respond to it? Like, how do you, how do you respond to a reality that is so almost foreign from and different from our reality that it changes how we think about ourselves and changes how we think about our faith. So, you know, faith and belief, wonderment, proper kind of amazement that instills in you a hope that things can and will be different as a result of Jesus coming. And for today, joy, that what flows out of that hope is joy. And it turns out uh, that, you know, if the main question is, how do we see Jesus? How do we see who Jesus is? How are we properly amazed by the person of Jesus? Uh, how does it instill in us a kind of hope for the future and a hope for 
where the world is going and for the coming of the kingdom, the uh, big one for today is what it means to take joy in it. So the basic stick around faith or belief that we've been talking about, which, you know, we kind of transition from why Jesus likes to talk in secrets and parables, is, as I said, the Bible's not particularly interested in justifying the existence or identity of Jesus. You know, like, we're obsessed with it these days. You can find, you go Google up apologetics or look at what so many of the uh, things that try and engage the public around who Jesus is and, and why Christianity is justified. And those things are all important, and I affirm their importance, but that's just kind of not the question for the Bible. The question for the Bible is, given that God has come, given that God has come in flesh and has come to us, I don't know, we're not like establishing something extra that happened in the order of reality. The point of the Bible is that that presence of Jesus is the foundational reality. It's a reality that's more real than the ground you're sitting on or the bite of cold on your skin. It's the reality that is more primary than any created thing. Like that's the claim the Bible wants to make, that when Jesus comes in flesh, it is the embodiment of the really real reality beneath everything else. Everything else is a function of or a derivative of it. And I don't know, like when you make that little turn in your mind, all of a sudden to me, the point of Christmas, the point of the coming of Christmas, the point of grace at Christmas becomes so different. Remember when I was in seminary, maybe the most powerful realization of anything that I'd read in the kind of canon of the Christian tradition was Augustine's realization that everything comes from nothing. That there is nothing that we are entitled to or deserve, but that everything that we experience is a gift of a God who loves us and deems it necessary to be present in the material world, both in the person of Jesus and in giving that world to us. And for me, it was such a radical change in how I thought about the character of the world, because instead of understanding yourself to have deficits in relationship to what you deserve, you can see everything as a gift which is given to us by a loving God who creates a world because God loves us. That is the foundational reality. It's not like we experience the world and we say, hey, I want to add on some Jesus to get some meaning out of this thing. It's such a weird way of understanding what spirituality or faith or whatever you want to call it looks like if that's something that you just kind of mix into your experience in material reality instead of seeing it as the foundational thing. That's how the gospel sees it. Belief or faith is not about us trying hard to gin up our confidence in a doctrine about God. It's not about us trying to figure out how we find meaning in a world that is otherwise meaningless. It is about those things in some sense, but it's about being amazed by the fact that a God who creates the world and creates you and knew your name and knit you together in your mother's womb and places you with people and with a purpose and in a context that that God is the foundation of everything that exists. And the funny part about existing is we kind of get into our own routine. We get into our own understanding and what we've seen over and over and over, even today, is like, I don't know, uh, the Gospels talk a lot about this idea of amazement in relationship to belief. And today, even again, after we see Jesus at the resurrection, he basically has to eat a piece of fish in front of the disciples to prove that he's not a ghost. Because it's, it's their experience of their own, own reality that it would be literally impossible that the God who created the universe could rise again and could appear to them. They'd seen the sky like calm the storm, walk on the water. They'd seen Jesus do everything you could possibly imagine to. And even here at the very end of their ministry, when Jesus comes to them, he basically called a shot. He said he was going to rebuild the temple and rise again. But here we see in this little element in Luke that they still don't believe that they are amazed by and they are, are wondered by, but ultimately requires Jesus to kind of open the scriptures to them and explain. 
The beautiful thing about what happens on the shore is that instead of being the kind of first amazement that we see where people are knocked out of themselves or their knowledge or their tradition on the shore, we, like we saw with the Pharisees, on the shore we kind of see the second amazement that finally the disciples are kind of trying to, are starting to get the point that the same God who creates the universe and who makes everything, who speaks everything into existence by a word has defeated death and has come to them in the person and is with them on the shore. And that, I think, is what we've been calling, for lack of a better term, the third amazement. The encounter with the person of Jesus that kind of knocks us out of ourselves and certainly changes our understanding of the world. But the point is that it, like the seed or like the fire or like the parable, it, it lands inside our heart and it grows. And that as it grows, we change and we begin to wonder in the positive sense. And that wonder causes us to see the limits of what we know. And it causes us to see the limits of our understanding. And it causes us to see the beauty and the power of an infinite God whose kindness and love and, and, and knowledge are infinite. And who like, wants to know us individually. And as we see those limits, we open ourselves to that God in a way that causes us not to shut Jesus out. But instead to invite him in and to be transformed at it. So that, as Mark says, that we look at the seed grow within us and it transforms us. That's the beauty of wonder that I think the gospel is talking about and the Advent cycle is talking about when we think about faith or belief. And as we saw last week, when that takes hold in you, it sets you free from optimism and instead you're invited to hope. The optimist says, hey, things are going to get better. The world's not as bad. Elon Musk will figure out the problem. The pessimist says, hey, the world is broken. There's nothing we can do about it. What's the point? Maybe we live in a way that tragically asserts the idea that we could grasp some meaning in the midst of the nothingness. But hope, real hope, the hope of Jesus begins that with the idea that because we wonder that God has come in flesh, that of course we cannot deny the brokenness of the world, but we believe that the kingdom is a means to redemption and that we believe that Jesus has come and that we can expect that even though things are broken, that they can and will be made right again, not by redeeming our suffering, not by taking the bad and magically making it into the good, at least I believe, but by ultimately defeating sin and death and restoring what we have all lost. So out of that belief grows within us a, a seed that allows us to hope. And I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that if belief leads to the possibility of hope, hope creates the possibility of a joy that can transform the world. And that's the thing about joy. I don't know, we think about joy and I think about it like winning the lottery and riding roller coasters and finally beating a game that you've been trying to beat for a long time. But joy is about so much more than that. We think about, I don't know, uh, joy is a momentary sense of pleasure that doesn't match the kind of pleasure that we have with the rest of reality. So it's kind of this like peak experience where we feel really, really, really good and really happy. But joy is so much more, at least as understood in the Christian tradition. Joy is the idea that our redemption is already on the way and that joy is the frame for and in fact is the, uh, the, the thread that is woven through the Gospels in a way that I don't think we talk anywhere near enough about. Even here at Resurrection, how many times have you heard us just go off on the idea of joy? Theologians have made the point that joy is the thing that is unique to the Christian religion. They've made the point that joy is the thing that distinguishes it from all the other systems of thinking about belief. And I didn't know how I felt about that claim until I still really started doing the work for this today. But in our reading in the first part of, of Luke today, Luke begins with the angel declaring joy. Luke ends with Jesus encountering the disciples and them experiencing joy. And then it ends with them going to Jerusalem and doing what? Celebrating and worshiping with joy. And joy is a theme that appears 30 times 
in, the, in, in, in Paul's writings. Joy is the theme that appears over and over and over in the course of the New Testament. And sometimes we don't hear it because we're so used to thinking of a Christianity, which is a tragic response to a fallen world that we don't understand, that one of the primary things that the gospel is calling for us to see is the joy of Jesus Christ's presence in the world. I mean, look at the first part of the Gospel of Luke today. The angel sings this song, and that elicits terror. And of course, that word terror is an amazement type word. It's the same sense of being knocked out of your mind. And it makes sense that you might be, because I don't know if you've had angelic figures ever visit you, but it'd be pretty disturbing. But the other thing that the Gospel wants us to see here in Luke is that the whole thing is kind of out of place. It's not just that there's an angel appearing to shepherds. I mean, that's big. That would be terrifying enough. But they're coming and they're announcing the presence of a king. They're using words that you'd use if you were blowing a trumpet and heralding the presence of a foreign dignitary. And so, I don't know, it's not only out of place because why are there angels in the middle of this field, but why are there angels who are announcing the coming of the king? We talked about a little bit last week to these shepherds, to these people who are in this folk of uh, the folk are in this position of significant disfavor. And why are the angels doing something like they do if they were announcing a royal delegation? And it's like an interaction that breaks all the rules of heaven's relationship to earth and king's relationship to subjects and earth's relationships to earth. And I'm, it probably breaks some rules for man's relationship to sheep, but it's totally out of place. It doesn't make any sense that the angel comes here and announces to the shepherd. But you know what? The gospel says the shepherds at first feel that kind of terror. They feel terrified. They feel that kind of amazement that's something like out of placeness. But the angels respond to it by doing what? They declare good news, which we've talked about before was a term for news that came from a military front. It was something about the idea that the future asked the possibilities for your nation were secure because of a great victory. They declare great joy, which I'm going to talk about for a good while here. And, you know, they declare that it's for all people. Now, I get the for all people part, because especially in the arc of Luke and Acts, as you all have heard a million times, the idea of all people is a pretty crucial concept. It starts with Israel and God's ministry weeks out to the world. But I've always wondered, like, why joy? Why do, I get the why you declare good news. God's going to win. The kingdom is coming. I get why you declare it for all people for the arc of Luke and Acts. But why joy? Why not reflect a sentiment that, like, Rome was going to fall or everyone would be set free or liberation was coming or the Messiah had finally come. Why joy? And I don't know, to answer it, you got to figure out what is joy. I've talked about it a little bit. We tend to think about it like it's this peak experience of happiness, but it has this like super prominent place in the gospel, as I've already alluded to, one that some folks think make it uh, make Christianity truly distinct. We see it from the angels at the beginning, we see it at the very end of Luke. I've already talked about the idea that it was a term that was used to announce good news, especially the arrival of a person. So, for example, if you were going to write a letter to someone important or you're going to announce the coming of a foreign dignitary, you'd open and close that letter with this idea of joy. But there is a reason for folks to be uh, not only excited about, but to think about the idea that there was a new possibility in the world that came out of that meeting. And in fact, before it was a religious term, joy was almost exclusively a Greek secular term that meant something like pleasure at the receipt of good news. So not only would you use it to announce a king or to announce an ambassador, but you'd use it if you like, I don't know, joy was a term you'd use, you'd associate with a wedding or with a military victory. The, the, the guys who uh, were under uh, uh, Judah Maccabee, in fact, used the idea of joy to say, 
how happy they were when they were given permission to wax traitors. Like joy has always had this sense in the secular term that kind of leaks into the Bible of wanting something, being granted it, and finally because you're granted it, there's this possibility of creating something new or making the world right. And I think that's probably why when the Greeks decided to translate a lot of the terms in uh in the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language that when they talked about festivals, they talked about them as times of great joy because people would celebrate them. And in celebrating them, they would think about what God has done for them. And so, yeah, joy is like looped in 12 times in Luke, 30 times, like I said, and Paul and joy has always had this idea of something like a greeting and something like a new possibility that comes into the world as a result of a meeting. And you can see very, very clearly why that makes such a difference in the context of Jesus. This is like the ultimate introduction in joy that the whole world might be changed because of the coming of this baby in flesh or in human form. But here's the thing. Joy is not only a secular term that gets taken up by the Gospels to mean something like a new possibility that comes out of a meeting. Joy has always had in it in the Gospel this sense of like, I don't know, it's like, what do you say, a messianic greeting, like that not only is something new going to happen, but the whole order of the world is going to change as a result of it. And the place where you see that is not only in the fact that it's put in the mouths of the angels, but the beautiful and the concentration of joy in the Gospels is most around what? It's around the resurrection. Almost all, the three of the four Gospels use the concept of joy and talking about how people respond to the resurrection in Matthew 28. The women at the tomb first experience confusion. And then what happens when they recognize Jesus? They feel this overwhelming joy, this new possibility that is embodied in the resurrection. And, and Luke disciples felt it in the upper room. They felt it here in meeting Jesus on the shores of the lake. And we see it in our second reading for today as they not only meet Jesus on the lake, but they return to Jerusalem with what? With joy. You see, joy does have the sense of something new being realized. That's why it was used in greetings. That's why it was used in inviting kings. That's why it was used in talking uh, to ambassadors. And the thing that ties together, I don't know, the introduction of an ambassador, a greeting in a letter, and a response to seeing Jesus, that especially if we are amazed by it or wonder through it or inspired to hope through it, is that as a result of the greeting and the meeting that comes from joy, we are invited into something new. Our uses of the word joy typically appear just at the cusp of realizing something. We've anticipated a good thing, and now that it has come, and boy, because it's come, it's a cause for celebration. So I don't know. Joy is something for us like a connection with an intense experience of pleasure. But in the Bible, it's so much more than that. I don't want to be like joy one and joy two to accompany amazement one through three. But the point is that as the Bible understands the concept of joy, it's not just a feeling of intense pleasure It is something about a future realization of our hope. It is something about embracing the possibility of the gift of grace. And not to put too fine a point on it, but the Greek word for joy is kara or karain. And it comes from the exact same root word for favor and for grace. And as you see the idea of joy used in the gospel, it is always the realization of something new that is simultaneously an extension of grace or receiving something that we never deserved and could not possibly have hoped for. 
There are lots of instances in the gospel that highlight this sense of joy. For Jesus and Luke, it, de- it defines how the shepherd feels about finding the missing sheep. The shepherd tends the sheep, and in the parable of the shepherd and the lost sheep, the shepherd had no real reason to expect that a sheep that had got, been gone for a while was able to be found. That sheep was likely made dinner for a wolf or stolen for something else. But when the shepherd sees the sheep, they feel the sense of joy. It's not just that they have met the sheep again, but instead there's this surprise in and this idea that there is a simultaneous possibility that is opened back up and something that is a result of favor and grace that we don't deserve. So Jesus describes the shepherd who finds the missing sheep as one who experiences joy. And if you're following what I'm cooking here, you wouldn't be surprised to find that the other primary place where joy is used in a parable is where? The prodigal son. It describes the way that the father feels as he watches the son wander across the field. It describes the moment before he hikes up his ceremonial robes and goes out and runs to them and that joy has this sense not only of a new meeting of something new happening but joy also has this sense not only of heightened pleasure but joy has a sense that our hopes are real and that we have reason to put our faith in them and we have reason to expect their fulfillment in the gospel and in, in, in particularly in Paul, like in Hebrews, for example, joy takes on exactly this third sense. So I don't know, Peter 4.13 says there's a claim to joy in sharing in the sufferings of Christ so that when his glory is revealed, it says what our joy will be triumphant. And Paul says in Hebrews that joy is the feeling we have when the end and the direction of history is certain that we have assurance of a future triumph. And so he urges our community to persist in suffering with what? With joy, because we know that something better is coming and because we know that Jesus has gone ahead of us and invites us. And even in Revelation, when the whole thing wraps up and there's a song of triumph for the wedding day of the Lamb, what is the primary call? It is a call to rejoice at the imminent presence of us and God at the end of history. Joy then is not just being real happy. It's not even just seeing a plan come to fruition. Joy is something that grows out of the fulfillment of our hope. It is both a greeting and an indication of something new and simultaneously a realization of the change in the world. Joy describes the emotion that we feel, but more than that, the disposition that we ought to have when we realize that the Christ event is not just something that is added on to history, but it is a foundational event that defines and retroactively writes all history so that it becomes both the apex and the foundation. And that's the thing, the joy of that kind, that joy, that joy that springs out of the hope, that springs out of belief is a resolutionary force that changes things. It doesn't just stick us where we are. It turns us towards another reality. It's one that we know is already there, that we live in the confidence that is fully achieved, and yet one that we know that we are not yet fully able to realize the already and the not yet. That is the character of Christian joy. And that's the thing. Like When you think about your emotional experience of your own Christian life, at least for me, I look at it, and as much as I'd like to say that I'm a perfect paragon of feeling the real joy of God in the world, the fact is that because Because we are controlled by the orders of sin and death and destruction, we are also so many times controlled by these practices that are not reflective of the world as God intends it. How many of us have lived not in the light of vocation, but under the oppressive yoke of just work? 
How many of us have lived not in the light of real connection with others, but of the feeling of obligation or of going through the motions? How many of us have lived our lives, of course, with moments of joy that are informed by the presence of Jesus, but so much of our lives are lived in the deadening warp and woof of our compliance with and our acceptance of the orders of sin and the orders of death? How many parts of our life are lived in places and institutions that have rejected the promise of redemption or that do not see it or that dead and not being connected with it. In those places, the attitude and the disposition that I have is one of resignation that is decidedly joyless. And in this place, joy is not a revolutionary force. If it occurs at all, it's, I don't know, something that helps grease the wheels of industry and of politics. The primary way of thinking about joy in the Roman Empire was to associate it with the various spectacles that help maintain political stability. If the Romans talked about joy, they talked about it around bread and circumstances. They talked about it in terms of producing a little bit of fun for people so they could get through all the other stuff about their life that was crummy and joyless. The sense of joy then, at least in the orders of sin and death, is that we experience joy because it makes us feel a little better about the terrible stuff around us. And it's a little teeny. Karl Marx was right about this part of one of the few things that he was. It serves as a kind of opiate that helps us feel better about a place that is fundamentally broken. Joy is, in many senses, in that sense, in that limited sense, a colonial tool. It was a means of keeping the population in check. It was a very tight and constrained sense of joy. It was a joy that was connected exclusively with the momentary experience of pleasure. When that angel announces to that shepherd in that field the joy of Jesus, they are heralding a revolution. Not just for the select few, not only for the safe expression in one place or at one time, but the angel's call is a call to see the whole of the world and everything in it as the product of a loving author who has come in the flesh to be with us and who invites us to experience the goodness of his world alongside us. God is with us in the person of Jesus. And the good news that brings great joy for all men is an invitation to a more radical redemption than we could ever possibly realize in the typical order of joy. It is a call to see the whole cosmos and every element of our lives is inflected by a joy that comes out of the hope of Jesus and that will one day redeem the whole world. And it stems from the wonders, as the song says, of his love. Look at the picture of joy at the end of, gospel, of the Gospel of Luke that we read today. Jesus has appeared to a few disciples, and now he's appeared to the whole group. And they do the full cycle we've been talking about. He declares their peace. They're startled and frightened. First, they think they see a ghost. Jesus knows this, so he addresses their doubts. He shows them his hands and feet. They see and feel his presence. They're amazed and joyful, and through that amazement and through that joy, they begin to believe. He eats some fish in front of them and demonstrates that he is there in the flesh. And then he tells them, and only then does he tell him, that everything that he has said is fulfilled in him. And the gospel says in verse 45 that he opened their mind so that they could understand the scriptures. They have gone through the cycle. They have encountered him in his face. And as a result, they are able now to know and to see the plan 
to believe, to have hope in it, and finally to throw themselves in to finding joy in it. And then he dismisses them, and guess what? He promises them a power they could never and fully, ever fully imagine. And so he sends them to Jerusalem. And the scripture says in 50, well, he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed at the temple continually praising God. It is that experience of worship and joy in the Savior that marks the Christian life, not the defiant but emotionally defeated sense of joy that everyone else is going to get their comeuppance because they don't believe, nor the puritanical obsession with regulating the behavior of other folks, nor the tragic sense that we need to make some meaning out of a meaninglessness world, but rather joy here is that we have seen him and been amazed by him and we have hoped in him. And because we know that our hopes will be fulfilled, we have found joy and we see the grace in what he has given us and we see that it is a foretaste of things that are to come and we embrace and we feel and we are overwhelmed by that experience and we know that it is already here even though it is not yet fully realized and thus we live out of Christmas a life that is marked by a celebration of the grace that is extended to us regardless of whether times are good or bad regardless of whether times are difficult regardless of where we are and we find in that an overflowing of a joy that enlivens us and awakens us and it reaches us in the depths of our own dark winter night and it grabs our hearts and it revives them because he has come for us and he is with us and he has come in flesh and that is not only good news but it is a cause for great joy among all of us what the angels announce and what jesus inaugurates in ascending and then sending then is not just an experience marked by the simple understanding of joy as being a heightened pleasure instead it is a reveling in the grace of a hope that is realized and it's not the best advice in the end of a sermon like this to be like well be joyful but it is likely good advice to say continue to wonder at the seed that is planted in the major and planted in your heart and be amazed and hope in him and when possible celebrate the fact that that hope is not only a promise that is yet to come, but it is something that is already realized and make room for joy when you find that and experience it and express it and express it worshipfully and without reservation because he has come for us and he loves us and God is with us. Great joy for all men. Amen.